0: potted market. We are turning the tables this time. Tayshawn Glover, a local journalist and sartorial savant, as I like to say, recorded this conversation with me uh, in May 2022, uh, so it's been a while. Uh, while there's some dated references in this conversation, we still think it's pretty fresh and topical. I just re-listened to it recently, and I'm actually kind of surprised at how relevant a lot of what we talked about in this conversation is. Uh, we talk about the election uh, we talk about my life, uh, my, the careers that I've done. Uh, right, we talk about rap and hip hop, of which I'm not an expert. We talk about the artistic process, cocktails, ambitions. There's a lot here, and Tayshawn's a great person to bounce ideas off of. So I hope you all listen, enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and um, stay tuned for even more episodes and conversations. Okay, cool. yeah. good, good. You, um, do you have plans for the weekend? uh not really i will i think it's just actually catching up with people i mean that's the post-covid world for you right yeah. uh you periodic yeah you gotta like make plans with a lot of people you haven't seen so long and so all your weekends become shot because you know promises that you made a year ago are now coming due <laughs> um so it has been extra busy that's uh, it's not a bad thing. It's just it means less time to myself. I mean, that was the beauty of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it's why I took on a lot more projects that I probably shouldn't have because all of a sudden I had this like found time yeah. I could do these things.
1: You so so uh, I want to talk about um, your experience at work, sure, because it's uh, rare mm-hmm. in the in the in terms of the culture of the organization. Yeah, and you know being in a tech organization, tech company, um, present day that's at the forefront, um, generally means that the culture within is quite peculiar. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not going to find that up and down Madison Avenue or, you know, Main Street, uh, for that matter. Um, before you worked here at Audible, did you work? Anywhere, else, like, what, where were you before? What did you do before?
0: Yeah, uh, I guess I might as well go into my life story right here. So um, when I came out of college, this was 2011, I did a, uh, I worked for a little-known organization called Teach for America. It's a long story there. <laughs> uh, it's not something I'm particularly proud of, okay. uh, but for me, it was an opportunity to come straight back to Newark and mm-hmm. work. Uh, you know, I'm I'm of that generation, the 08, 09 generation. I graduated in 11, but I consider myself part of that era where um, people didn't know what you were supposed to do after college. The world had kind of shifted. Recession had caused many like normal options to kind of
2: mm-hmm.
0: disappear or mm-hmm. evaporate. And so I decided to do TFA because it was—it felt like I could get back to Newark. And they actually you don't get to choose where you go, but I kind of put my foot down and said, I won't do this unless I do Newark. No. And someone must have heard me say that because they gave me Newark. Mm-hmm. And I was at East Side High at a program called Big Picture Ironbound. So it technically wasn't East Side High, but I was in okay. Big Picture Ironbound. Um,
1: but in the Eastside building? It was right? in the East Side building, yeah.
0: Gotcha. And I was doing experiential learning, which was a lot of fun, but a lot of stress. Uh, Because of weird budget cuts, I got pushed out. Uh, You know, I was the least senior teacher there. And so I was given the option to go to another Newark public school and end up going to technology in the North Ward. And I taught there for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a strong feeling this was going to happen again. And so to have my ducks in a row, I had my law school application ready. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to law school, got in at the last moment and decided to go to NYU in the city. And that was a lot of fun. Expensive, but fun. Uh, I lived actually very close to where my dad grew up. My dad grew up... I grew up in Newark myself, and my dad grew up in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I was living in that area of town of Soho, uh, yeah. which is a lot of fun. Yeah. And I said to myself, in law school, like, whatever I do in law school, I'm going to come back to Newark. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I ended up working for a law firm. Well... While I was in law school one summer, I actually worked for the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice when Mm -hmm. Dr. Brooks was actually running the organization. Now it's Ryan Haygood, a Mm -hmm. really great guy. I like him a lot. Mm -hmm. But I was there when Dr. Brooks was there. And um, I uh, knew I wanted to be back in Jersey. And so I got an associate job at Lowenstein Sandler, which is actually originally a Newark firm. But they moved out in the 80s to Roseland, where they still are. And while I was there, they were contemplating a move to a new office. And I, being the young, precocious guy, kept trying to like, you guys should move back to Newark. It's part of the narrative and everything. And they did not do that. They decided to move across the street. And I felt, not that I felt betrayed by that, but I just kind of felt like this is probably not the place I want to be. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough while I was in law school to get what's called a clerkship. So I had a job lined up for a year after I was working at the law firm to work for a federal judge here in Newark. An amazing guy. His name is uh, Judge Kevin McNulty. He's a really, really interesting judge. Mm. And I did that for a year. Loved it a lot. It was a really cool job. It was like a nine to six job. Like my weekends were mine. Mm -hmm. Wasn't worrying about things as much. I'm worried still, but I was not worrying about things as much. But it was a time-limited job. I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't want to go back to the law firm. So I took a year. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of crazy. Uh, I had no money, basically no income. And kind of try to figure it out. And while I was doing that, I um, was helping Emily Mance. I think you know Emily. Mm -hmm. I was helping her out. She had a contract with Audible. Still does. Mm -hmm. uh, But she had a specific contract to develop tours for their new building, the Innovation Cathedral. And I uh, fell into that project, was doing eight hour days on that, even though it was like a kind of contract, you know, job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really found the company fascinating. It's really funny because I lived in New York. I'd been in New York. I did a lot of stuff in New York. I knew Audible was there. Mm -hmm. I did not know that they were trying to do all this stuff for New York. And I was blown away by this because it just was kind of amazing that they were doing this narrative about coming to Newark in 2007, Mm -hmm. trying to build out their community presence and trying to turn the city around, at least from their perspective. And after doing that, I I noticed a job position that was open, Mm -hmm. and I applied for it. Um, Got noticed because of the work I did for the tours. I actually gave the press tour for the opening of the building, was quoted in NJ.com, and I think that opened some doors from what I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been at Audible now for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I was initially in the office of the founder, so Don Katz. I Mm -hmm. worked for him. Um, Very recently, I moved over to the Global Center for Urban Development, which is where Ayesha Glover is. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of work um, on these Newark-specific initiatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, A good example is Newark Working Kitchens, where uh, we've been running it since April 2020. It's basically a food delivery program where we use restaurants in Newark. Um, you know, restaurants, you know, like, uh, Kyle Campbell's, the Walla, um, uh, Sihana's in it. Um, uh, Peter's square, Vonda's kitchen, uh, uncle Willie's down in the South Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, all these great restaurants are in the program and we basically put a set number of meal orders per week with them and they deliver those meals to people in public housing, homeless populations, yeah. community organizations. That's been a lot of fun. I've been managing the finances for that for about a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Um, I also work on some of the uh, initiatives we have about making Newark a more a place for, attractive for young people. Uh, one of the ways we're doing this differently is we're doing an initiative around um, trying to convince people who have some attachment to the city to stay here. Mm-hmm. We're being very broad with that intentionally. I uh, And I, I, I myself advocated for that because I think there are a lot of different variations on who's a Newarker and whether it is that you grew up here, maybe left because... You went to boarding school like I did. I did a program that sent Newark kids to boarding school. Still exists, this program. Um, Or, you know, maybe you came here for Rutgers Newark and um, you're trying to figure out what you want to do. So we're trying to create a sort of jobs program where people from Newark who have this connection can find employment in and around the city and build their lives here. Because I think one of the hardest parts about Newark, and I'll say this first is that we suffer from a weird kind of brain drain that I think very few other cities do where we we actively tell I I know this in the city people actively tell you know people who've achieved things in academia or have gone to really good schools to leave you Mm -hmm. know and to uh to go and do other things and I think that Uh, Newark is like any ecosystem it needs a balance of people and I think that's one place where we do come up short are like highly technically skilled uh, people who are originally from here I mean like we still have people who get jobs here who are uh, who come from other places I don't begrudge them a lot that's basically my friend group Um, the people I hang out with are all the people who launched the magazine with me the Newarker they're all people not from Newark I'm I think I'm the only one of the editors who actually grew up here Mm -hmm. um the people I hang out with at Sihana, I play chess with, they're all, they're all people chess? who've moved here. I do. I play a lot of chess, actually. Oh, man. I play, like, a lot. You could. If you could I'm actually, no joke, going after this to Sihana to play chess for the I rest of my I'd Friday only, night, yeah.
1: We would have played a game. We would have done this over a game. Ah,
0: that would have been really cool. Yeah. Although, I, I, it's so hard. I can't focus on both. I'll either mess up the conversation okay. or mess up the game or probably mess oh, up both. Okay. <laughs> gotcha.
1: So, okay. Okay, so yeah. yeah. Um, I'm... That's really fascinating to me because not only is the narrative uh, for corporations largely been that there isn't a talent pool here, mm-hmm. but to to hear that there's also compounding that people literally telling um, young people or just you know yeah. very skilled people to leave at the same time.
0: Yeah, I, I'll i add one more thing to that, which is something I've discovered through specific talking I've done with people that I know, and there's tra- add trauma to that. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to control for that, but there are people who grew up with a level of trauma in the for city. Sure. I mean, we all know sure. what it's like growing up here. And so that's also a hard aspect because I think some people have some, a physical reaction to being here. Mm-hmm. Um, someone I'm very close to who doesn't live in the city anymore, that's very much why he's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just don't know what you do about that. That's hard. I, I don't yeah.
1: know. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, no answer is the answer for everything yeah, yeah. and everybody. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it, I've, I've really, really come to be more interested in what is the narrative being told of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think um, that the narrative is most important. I think yeah. it's more important than the truth, even. Um, because we create truths out of narrative.
0: Yes. And we call
1: ourselves creating yep. narratives out of truth, but more times than other, we're creating truth out of narrative.
0: I would also add something that. I think you're right. Um, that's the first degree, which is to understand the difference between narrative and truth. Mm-hmm. I think that then the synthesis from that is to... Have truth in dialogue with narrative, mm-hmm. and I because I think when narrative gets divorced from truth, and I think I see this a lot in New York. And I'm not going to call it anything in specific, mm-hmm. but I think I often see a narrative that's being constructed that is a bit divorced from the actual like diversity of the city. And when I say diversity, I mean a strong, not just racial diversity. I mean like in a stronger mm-hmm. sense of the different kind of things that are going on here. Yeah. And while I think it's important to put forward a very strong narrative, I also want that narrative in dialogue with what's actually this mm-hmm. place is about and what it really is. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's where the floor falls out from under you, particularly when you actually bring people here, yeah. when you've told them one thing and it's not that, um, mm-hmm. which is why I like a lot of ad and brand campaigns for the city. I'm often, I'm just kind of like, I have a sense of ennui about them because mm-hmm. I don't look, like, I'm not against those, those efforts. It's just, yeah. I find them uh, trying to do too much often. And, mm. um, Like, you have to still do the work. It's like, I think a lot lot of people keep telling me, like, New York just needs better branding. Like, no, no, no. We need to build the institutions. Mm -hmm. And this is why I do the podcast. This is why my friends and I did the magazine, Mm -hmm. because I think we were waiting too long. (laughs) We constantly wait for people to come in and do these things for us, and they just don't Mm -hmm. happen. (laughs) They don't. Um, Or if they do, we lose control of them. Right, right. Yeah.
1: Um, I'm I'm also interested and fascinated in platform and media. Mm -hmm and I think that it's uh, that's another area where we can affect significant change in terms of yep. the narrative and um, and the truth um, ultimately um, the people who are reading NJ.com and mm-hmm. the Star Ledger and RLS Media for News on Newark <sighs> are already reading yeah. it for the reasons that those platforms satisfy, yeah. So it's like we should really, really be doubling down on podcasts and you know digital media, um, because that's also the the platforms and mediums where those younger people are more likely to not only come across information about Newark, but uh, share what they come across. Yeah, you know what I mean. And if we can out if we can outdo the Dinosaurs um, Will outdo the dinosaurs yep. You know what I mean And, and you know Dinosaurs of, of media <laughs> Yeah um, But I think that's just something like You know There's this Not only is there the The speed uh, Of the technology And the ability to Distribute content So Readily And accessibly for Everyone else Or for For many people But the fact that Anybody can you know what I mean like you don't need the microphones and the setup and a camera and a mixer and a sound yeah. engineer like you don't you you have a phone you have enough yeah you know and and it's been proven it's not even it's not just a thing to say for the sake of the debate it's proven yeah like you 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 need so very little nowadays um so it's so important for us to take advantage of what we do have
0: I actually like you're right I like the de- democratization of media, mm-hmm. but I do like the formality that comes with, or the rigor that comes with formality. Uh, these things, these two things I think are often intention. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to get too meta about like these things, but like the act of you setting up the microphones here, yeah. right? Me setting a time for my podcast, yeah. um, the, the sort of track, the copy editing we're now doing for the, uh, yeah. the magazine. These things I think do matter. Like, yes, we have the tools now they're much easier to access, but mm-hmm. I still think formal processes are important because, uh, that rigor is so important to mm-hmm. what we do. And I, I I get asked a lot in Newark. It's actually kind of blows my mind about how to start a podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly with the younger people, but in general. yeah. And the first thing I say is, do you know what you want to talk about, right. first of all? B, why are you, why should I listen to you? Right. And that's the, it's the second part that people often miss. Uh, and I'm not perfect with this myself. I'm mm-hmm. still trying to figure out my own show. But... I often have kids coming up to me and wanting to do the next iteration of some kind of rap podcast to discuss music. Mm-hmm. And I don't begrudge them that wanting to pursue a passion. But at the same time, I keep saying, you know, not everyone wants to listen to you and your friends discuss, you know, your thoughts on the latest, yeah, like you yeah, know, yeah. Kendrick Lamar just dropped something. Yeah. Right. Um, but, You know, just because you think it's a fun conversation doesn't mean you're adding something to a larger conversation. I don't think they can't. I just want them to ask those questions because once you start asking those questions, then you start seeing where the blind spots are. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reason why I I did initially pot and market was to, no one was, like, there were a lot of music-based podcasts in this town, but there were none that were doing, like, policy discussions. Now, I've kind of migrated away from that because I couldn't just get, the level of people I wanted to do that. So I moved to more of an interview format just to keep it going. But there weren't those in-depth conversations. And I actually start my opening essay, if you listen to the very first episode, I talk about this, about like the Star Ledger. I I didn't call them out specifically in Mm -hmm. that essay, but I, 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 I... said it full in, with full intention about them, mm-hmm. uh, that le- we've been abandoned by a lot of traditional media outlets that are not covering New York. I mean, like, yeah. they did not assign a reporter to our election. I mean, I could talk to you about the election no, no, for no. the next hour. <laughs> um, yeah. Until a month ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm actually good friends with Mark Bonama when I was talking to him a lot about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was just like, I don't, we were both scratching our heads, but we also knew what was going on, so it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. But like, it, they just didn't want to invest in that. And sure. this goes back to this lo- earlier conversation about having to build these institutions ourselves because not only are they not there and we have to build them, but they were there previously and right. are now gone. Right. That is even scarier. Right. Um, the fact that they don't operate an office anymore, I mean, we're literally a block away sure. from where they used to be. Yeah. They actually physically printed the newspapers yeah. here at one point. Um, that's all gone, mm-hmm. right? And I keep, so when people ask me, just to go back to the earlier, the initial point that started this, when people talk to me about starting a podcast, I often ask them those rigorous questions Mm -hmm. because it's one thing to have easier access to technology to mass produce and mass disseminate your thing, but it's another thing to make that thing worthwhile. And this is exactly why Facebook and Twitter are a problem, right? I don't hate Facebook. I think it's done a lot of really interesting things in connecting people, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, the reason why it sucks so much is we've allowed everyone to have a megaphone but taught no one how to actually speak, right? Right. And so I hope that we all bring that level of rigor. It doesn't have to be academic the way I speak, right? I, I don't mean it to be like super polished, regular. but I want a level of meta thought of like, what am I doing here? What am I consciously doing? Yeah. And even rough stuff like, I mean, famously, Tangerine was recorded on an iPhone and that's considered a classic film, mm-hmm. not because it was recorded on an iPhone, but because it was also trying to put forward an interesting message, I think, about trans identity, which mm-hmm. is a really cool um Makes it a really cool film, mm-hmm. um, but similarly, like just because you have the tool doesn't mean you are using it effectively.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there's also the uh, when it comes to like folks interested in starting a, a platform, yeah. starting a podcast. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned uh, personally is, mm-hmm. in terms of the why do you want to do this, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I think the validation of being famous even moderately famous yeah. is a driving force for a lot of people when it comes to yeah. you know platform especially if it's a platform for personal brand or or a personal voice and so you know uh it also it shows itself every time you see somebody put out an episode or two or three yeah that don't get a good deal of audience and then you don't see an episode four yeah and it's like, well, aren't you as interested in the subject matter as you were? Don't you think your position or your opinion are as valid as they as you thought they were? You you bet that this was a success before you did it. You know what I mean? That was the bet that this was going to be at least moderately successful, and for no other reason than because you've been watching successes. Yeah, you've been watching other podcasts. You've been you know, and you. You're generally seeing the the most successful you know if you're if you're not a, a fan of the podcast just by way of the personality or the subject matter it's like yeah okay if you stumble across joe rogan or joe budden or hmm. you know bill burr or or you know what i mean seth Godin, like any of these people like by that point they're they're very successful at it so you shouldn't ever Use that as the marker of what your first three right. should look and like. Joe and Joe Rogan's been doing it for like,
0: 20 years right. now. So, like, there's a long lead-up time to yeah. that. Like, obviously, some people break through. I think that's the hard part is you see a lot of people who break through. Right? Yeah. And so you 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 hit your, your standard or you, you use them as a benchmark, and that's bad. Right? Right. And I feel bad because, like, I think I've uttered the same critique you just mm-hmm. said right now. But I also feel bad because, like, those are, like, that... That was not not in the room when I was thinking about doing the podcast. there mm-hmm. some level of, like, this could actually turn into something that yeah. makes me... First of all, I was actually looking for a way to, like, maybe someone would take it up and it would be an, a form of employment, like, mm-hmm. just a way to pay bills, mm-hmm. which it still hasn't become. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still out of pocket completely on yeah. uh, on that. But I will say that I really did think about that this could be a way to launch myself... Where I, why I keep doing it? I do. I do struggle with episodes. It's why I'm not as regular with episodes because I have a high bar to who should come on. Because mm. uh, I just don't want to feel like I'm doing it just for the sake of doing it.
2: Yeah.
0: But I will say that, like those moments where people come to me, they, and it does happen. It's kind of weird where they realize who I am, they find out and they tell me, I really love that particular episode, mm-hmm. blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, to this day, like, I, I, I'm I still, sometimes I feel like I'm recording alone and I'm just like, no one's listening to uh-huh. this. <laughs> and I do get one, so it's not like all the time. It's definitely just like, you know, once a month maybe. Yeah. I get someone being like, oh, like, I, I've been listening to your show. Oh, that's you? Like, they, right. they don't necessarily recognize the voice right away, but they're like, oh, yeah, you're that guy. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's actually rewarding, I right. have to say. Yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, I would imagine, is just the fact that you're doing a thing that you didn't think all your life, you didn't know existed, didn't exist yeah. for a large portion of your life, right? And even when it did, you didn't think of it as something that you would do. And then to have done it and gotten a response, and not just like a, you know, your 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 best friend Commented on the thread mm-hmm. as a show of support and to kind of get the ball rolling, type of thing. But like a stranger, you know what I mean, or somebody that you didn't know listened, tells you that not only do they listen, but they like it. Yeah, uh, that's an, that's an that's an adventure. Yeah, that's that's a arc of an adventure, and there's a reward at the end of it. You know what I mean? And that's amazing. Uh, it's just there are there are more things to consider, and I think or, or time has got to be given more space. Yeah. Um, it's like, I'm not really good at this. You know what I mean? So any thoughts of success, success rewards are premature right now. Oh, okay. yeah. Because I'm not really good at this. No. You know what no. I mean? I'm an amateur at this, you know? And so even that, even though it's familiar or even though I might be one of the few people in my friend circle who's doing it, still I'm not good at it you know what i mean? it's just that it, there are, there are public platforms that people can see it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then form an opinion and share their opinion just as publicly.
0: Yeah. I mean, 90% of success is actually weirdly really being the first someone person to do something even if you're not the expert. Mm-hmm. And the irony is if you uh it's really interesting if you look at the history of any kind of media creation, um the first person to that form mm-hmm. often Sets the standard for it mm-hmm. for ages, even sometimes mm-hmm. millennia uh, I mean like you, you see this with like um, the Socratic dialogues if you go back to like, ancient Greece right mm-hmm. these things endure that standard of how you do philosophy mm-hmm. has continued it's there in the DNA it's not necessarily the medium anymore of how you share these ideas, but it's there and similarly with plays and other things like you know the Greek, Greek drama. Is still how we're doing drama to this mm-hmm. day because they kind of invented the form that yeah. specific. Yeah. Now that there wasn't drama going on before, but the way they did it right. has has endured over time. And I hate to harp on ancient Greeks because I feel like this is just an easier <laughs> one to explain. <laughs> but I'm saying anyone who does an, initially a medium then will uh, the late night talk shows right yeah. that started in the '50s, Jack yeah. Parr yeah. and that yeah. crowd, yeah. Steve Allen, they set that standard. Right. And I think similarly.
1: And Jimmy Fallon doesn't look very different. Different, no. In
0: fact, if anything, he's he's kind of channeling Johnny Carson. Yeah. Much, I, I really don't mm-hmm. like Jimmy Fallon. So much he, worse than John, Johnny is. Carson could I mean, ever do. But it. all the late night talk show hosts, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, so similarly, if you're the first one to do that, whether it's a Newark interview mm-hmm. podcast, you are, as long as people are listening to it, going to endure. Yeah. May, not endure like actual new episodes, but people will come back to it because you are the one who started that right. conversation. Right. Yeah. Uh, art works like this actually all the time. I keep seeing this in art too, of like, and particularly how media is set. And um, you see this all the time in different things. And I only bring it up because, like, that's the importance of doing it. If you have an idea, and like I said, you still have to ask those meta questions for mm-hmm. rigor. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you go out doing it first, you'll be like, you may not get the rewards in this lifetime, but those the rewards will be the endurance of what you've done, which yeah. is kind of cool to think about
1: yeah I, I i think about the the art point uh in terms of how you know generally anything that's commoditized becomes um, mm. uh becomes easily like becomes packaged there's a desire to package it by those who have commoditized it and when you think about like hip hop for example you know whenever a new genre or or Style of hip hop was Mm. discovered, so it's like, oh, they're doing it like that in the south, or or they're doing like that in the Midwest, or they do it like that on the West Coast. Whoever, like every so, N.W.A. comes out, yeah, and then all record executives in hip hop who were looking for the next L.A. sound or the next L.A. act were looking for a version of N.W.A. Of course, you know what I mean. They weren't looking for what does L.A. or the West Coast have to offer. They just were like, well, that's it. So just give me more of that. You know what I mean, and um, it just goes to show that like being the first really sets the tone for a number of reasons, and it gets perpetuated by you know different factors.
0: But I think it's important you mentioned commodization because what commodization does is incentivizes the worst aspects of that medium. Mm -hmm. I, I think like you know it's it's very funny that you mentioned NWA because. Like within ten years, what is the dominant form of rap, at least on the radio? And what yeah, you're yeah. listening to is gangster rap, right? Yeah. Like it's the era of Fifty Cent and yep. and, and uh, um, you know, all the the greats. I yeah. say, you know, I'm actually not a, this is not my genre. I'm actually talking extemporaneously. But, yeah, I mean, but like you see that, right? Because the, the, the like what you, the commodification does is it, it it creates a sort of um, mm-hmm. uh, a fetish around the worst aspects mm-hmm. of it, right? The lifestyle aspects, which um, the irony of rap is it's supposed to be this very verbal medium, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it adds a level. A, a, when I say verbal, I really mean where the words matter. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of music, particularly, you know, black music before that was very focused on just like, was it really good sounding, mm-hmm. right? Whereas rap is like more really deeply involved in the lyrics and the lyrics mm-hmm. are what matter and the beat on the back is just there to kind of yeah. give it musicality, yeah. right? Which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And the irony is what becomes more important is the sort of the feuds and the um, the the beefs and all that stuff, and then it eventually becomes all about like uh, an aesthetic lifestyle mm-hmm. that you see white kids in the suburbs. This is like the irony of the two thousands, yeah, yeah. right? Where all the white kids in the suburbs have like baggy pants, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Lo- lo- the, they have that look, mm-hmm. right? And that's what per- has pervaded. And I sound like an old person here, where it's like you know the message about hip hop didn't break through. It was this stupid thing about like yeah, 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 gangster right. rap. Um, it was so funny. I went to boarding school and I even saw this like pervading boarding school culture. It was kind of bonkers. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, hip-hop and, and rap music are so interesting because they are, they are simultaneously, the music is simultaneously mm-hmm. fact and fiction mm-hmm. um, intentionally and it's accepted. Um, and it, it kind of gets silly whenever either side becomes under scrutiny and criticism. Yes. It's like, oh, I thought you were telling the truth. It's like, mm, well... You kind of suspended reality for all of your favorite artists when they said a thing that was clearly not the truth and now you wanna hold up this person for not yep. being the truth. Yep. Or vice versa. It's like, you know, you, you only wanna ever hear the truth and then somebody says something, you know, with some imagination and, and expands to it and it's like, Oh, Kendrick Kendrick puts out a new album and mm-hmm. it's like people don't know how to take it because they only wanna hear what they've heard and liked from Kendrick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the critique that artists get when they do something that is pushing their own art forward and by extension the 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 art forward is that it's not what we've already seen, tasted and liked. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, well Jay Z used to say, you know, if you like the old me, go buy the old album. Right. but
0: You're still supporting me though. <laughs> yeah, like
1: you, can, like you can have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can have that. That's not, mm. that's not being restricted from anybody or withheld from anybody. It's right there. You, you already know the name of the album. Just go buy it. But if the artist is to be the artist, then what their role and their job is is not to do what they've already done. Right. You know what I mean?
0: Um, You have a lot, actually, uh, I don't know if you want to stay on this point, because I I, I often think about this a lot mm -hmm. in terms of art, a little bit older artists, but, you know, previous generation artists, Mm -hmm. where they do enter these weird phases. I've always had this deep fascination with uh, David Bowie Prince and George Michael. Mm -hmm. One reason is they actually all die the same year, and it really affected me heavily because I loved all three of them. Um, But they also uniquely have periods in their life where they go on this kind of weird... You know, sort of like Jesus in the desert for forty days, kind Mm. of thing. Uh, Not forty days; it's longer than that. Where they're fighting their labels. For David Bowie, he goes to Berlin Mm -hmm. and actually dabbles in fascism as an aesthetic thing. It's really weird. It's actually one part of David Bowie I really don't like. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also has some of my favorite songs out of that period. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know how to come to terms with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But similar to George Michael, he fights his label. Prince famously fights his label. (laughs) Uh, Probably the most famous fighter of the three for doing that, right? And why are they fighting their label? It's to regain control mm-hmm. of the artistic expression of their music because they're being told by the label, mm-hmm. stick to what you've been doing already, right? right? Um, for George Michael, it's not, you know, not really admitting to his to his mm-hmm. gayness, right? Mm-hmm. For Prince, it's not going into this like you know deep space of like things are fucked up. I mean, mm-hmm. Sign of the Times is basically yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, and for David Bowie, it's similarly like he needs to he's trying to find this new art form and quite, can't quite figure it out. Right. And the label just really wants another you know, Ziggy Stardust or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. So I think it's hard with artists. I'm, and I'm not an artist, but I, I feel like I know enough of their stories to see that they constantly have this fight of, particularly if they're commercially viable. Like this doesn't matter as much when they're not commercially viable because they get to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. But where you have not only your own like, wealth at stake but also these artists don't live alone like they they're corporations in their yeah. own right a corporation's is a strong term but they're they're operations in yeah. their own right so you have all these people who do their tours and work on them they're the mm-hmm. people who put out their stuff who promote them all are relying on them to be continued yeah. to be this entity and so there are also social pressures to to maintain that mm-hmm. level Um, but they're artists at the end. That's why they've broken through. And so Mm -hmm. they're always, if they're, I think a good artist going to be constantly questioning what they're doing and wanting to see a new medium. Now there's some who just constantly keep doing it and doing it. Well, you mentioned Jay-Z. I think Beyonce is a good example of someone who just keeps putting out really interesting new stuff, Mm -hmm. but is not also like, it's also very commercially viable. I think it's maybe Mm -hmm. the kind of beautiful intersection that is Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Um, But not all artists are blessed with that. Some have to break the glass to, to, to understand what
2: they're, yeah, doing. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so many just don't have the they're not they don't come into the career of it mm-hmm. with that footing yeah. and that being rooted in you know building the art career that they want to build. Um there is there's always that dangling of the carrot and and this is outside of, you know, art and music. This is everywhere. But, like there's all that dangling of the carrot or like you said the incentivization where um uh, you've tasted success and now the machine tells you well if you'd like more we know how to do it yeah and you have to do it this way and it's it's so ironic because for many if not um all of, you know of these artists um their first attempt to get some record executive to listen uh was not successful mm. you know what i mean the record industry you know Um, Not to keep referencing Jay-Z, but Jay-Z talks about how every record label Mm -hmm. uh, said no at the beginning. You know what I mean? And literally every record label saying no would tell most people, this is not for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to turn around and tell that same person, I know what's for you, it's like, nah, you can't possibly.
0: Ah, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about it that way because that—that's really hard because like that's the weirdness. Like everyone, ha- like to go back to narrative, everyone like has this. You know, everyone loves a narrative that they're fighting something and they're fighting some kind of machine. Mm-hmm. So that where that could also go wrong is like the person legit yeah. has no art and they're constantly telling no, but they're telling themselves that like it's just because I'm an, like I'm unrecognized as an artist. Mm-hmm. So you get that kind of weird. We often find this in comedy. Mm-hmm right and we make fun of these kind of people whether it's in real like reality tv is a good example yeah. like that american idol was just that the every first episodes of the season was a Schadenfreude you would just watch these people who were deluded mm-hmm. into thinking that they were geniuses and completely fall flat yeah. and the irony is some of them would actually end up having careers because of that because they were kind of a For novelty yep. yeah but on the flip side you're right it takes a level of pushback and being told you know I don't think what you're doing is like good or viable or whatever to give you a little sense of like stake in that game mm-hmm. and to wanting to push forward something because when someone says no, that gives you a little more of a um, an ability to f- stick to your guns and, and yeah. try to form your art. Yeah. yeah, knowing
1: knowing the no's is better than knowing the yeses often.
0: Yeah, but you need the yeses to keep you going. I mean, like it's it's such a weird. I like I hate to be so like dual natured about this like everything is nothing and right, right, right. everything is true at once but like you still need yeses to like mm-hmm. like if, if you get constantly no's that could actually kill you like, you're, like quite literally right yeah but um,
1: there is no such thing as infinite no's
0: of course no, that's true, that's I true. Mean, it, it is eventually also, we'll find yeah a matter yeah. of
1: your patience and, and you yeah. know how much gas you have in the tank to hear no's yeah but it's an impossibility that you'll only hear no mm-hmm. you know what I mean if you keep, if you persist at whatever, like, yeah. pe- like there are people who have, um, met success and been mediocre. They, they found a yes though, you know, somewhere. Um, and, and, you know, not to be critical of anybody else's, but like mediocre by their own standard. Like mm-hmm. they, there are plenty of people who are in position that they know they don't deserve to be in by way of their merit. Yeah. You know, so that's not far fetched, uh, in the grander scheme of things. I don't think, um, I'm curious about something to know, uh, in terms of potted market, um, mm-hmm. policy conversation. So I'm not a, um, I'm not politically interested right, or inclined. I do. Think Nor is I'm, most of Newark as we learned in this yeah, lax yeah. election where 16,000 people voted. Yeah. I'm
0: actually writing an essay for the magazine about this because it drove, yeah. this thing drives me nuts. Sorry to interrupt, but no, that's, no. I just want to make that point. <laughs> but
1: I mean, you know, I want to talk to you about it um, specifically because it's like yeah. um, there is a great number of factors that I think uh, point to why Newark has the political landscape that it has Mm -hmm. at the various you know plateaus and levels right and for residents and citizens I think you know this latest climb report from Rutgers that talks about you know (laughs) residential real estate and how much residential real estate is not owned by people let alone people who are Newarkers and live in these homes but 50% being corporate investment means that 50% of the land ownership and home ownership for, you know, residential real estate are for people are, are sorry, for entities who cannot vote in north. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. And so when the conversation goes to would you like things better for the place that you live, it's a very different conversation if you are talking to a community and a populace who are, by and large, renters mm-hmm. and don't even know for sure whether they were successful or not for the next year that they would live in Newark for the next year. Right. You know, what I mean, they might just bounce over to East Orange or bounce over to Irvington. Like, you, know, you know, the landlord might sell the house and they'll mm. end up moving to Elizabeth or moving to Atlanta or whatever. You know what I mean? That that uh, factor uh, in the And the whole recipe, I think, is largely uh, underrepresented Mm -hmm. and underestimated. Um, And I think that until things like that are given more attention and addressed, uh, you can't really. It's a really difficult argument to say to folks, you should vote anyway. Yeah. Like, if all you're going to say is, but you should vote anyway, it's like, all right, but, you know. I should do a lot of things anyway.
0: Yeah, so as I've been thinking about this essay, one of the things I didn't want to do was talk down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, The essay that I'm writing is not so much directed at 10% of Newark's electorate, I think, whatever the number yeah, is, right? Yeah, yeah. Vote in this election. Oh, how that's bad. You all are, right. you know, effing up here. Yeah. No, no, that's not it. What I'm focusing on is what? Are, how do we create a culture around feeling invested about that and I actually the essay's going to be a little more focused on structural things that we can do to make elections more relevant Um, less so that's a larger problem I don't know how to solve that Um, I would argue actually I've asked Professor Trapp to come on I think he's initially agreed but Mm -hmm. we've got to find a time because I do want to talk to him about the methodology behind the report because I'm deeply fascinated by it but the deep irony is as much as I saw the city share this article I'm trained as a lawyer I kind of know what's going Mm on there's very little the city could do about this because this is like not something that's within the city's power to necessarily fix. Mm -hmm. Put a pin in that because I want to talk about more about like what the city does right around these things and what it does wrong. But to get back to the political culture thing, I think um, we do ourselves a disservice and I think it probably has to do with machine politics. I I think I will lay this at the uh, feet of machine politics Mm -hmm. where we have way too many elections at random times Mm -hmm. where no one's paying attention uh, and that's by intention it looks like Uh, We have races, we have, like, constituencies without without constituents, per se, or constituents without constituencies. Uh, Like, the at-large position is uh, a relic of 1960s reforms. It turns out it's really not a good reform, Mm. I would argue. Uh, The fact that we had four people run for four spots last time is just a sign that it's, like, not a good position, Mm. uh, because it doesn't even have competition. And who are they representing? The whole city doesn't make any sense. Um, (laughs) It'd be different if you only got one vote. Right, right. But you you vote four times. It makes no sense, right? right? Why like it essentially gives power to uh, it actually reinforces majority politics, yes. which is actually really fascinating. Um, but other things like you know the fact that the elections in May, so it's off cycle, off cycle. So it's mm-hmm. off cycle year wise. It's mm-hmm. off cycle uh, month wise. Mm-hmm. It really makes people go like, oh, there was an election going on. But that's kind of the point. Yeah, um, and. It's a really, this is the problem with incumbency advantages. They're really hard to undo because the incumbents want them, and the incumbents are the ones usually empowered to change that. So, like, whether it's Baraka, whether it's James, Mm -hmm. whether it's even Booker, who's a little more, I think, structurally reform minded, um, they're not going to undo that because they receive a lot of benefit from it, right? And um, I think if we could just think a little bit more in those terms, I think it'd be healthy for the. For a more robust democracy, the problem is, the people who want a more robust democracy are the people usually, and it's not any specific political individual, right? Right, and right. so that's always going to be hard to push for that. But sometimes it does happen because of like either you know, randomly a person comes into power who actually ends up believing that. I think this is the story of Lyndon Johnson, weirdly. It's a mm-hmm. it's a boy from the South ends up becoming the president who right. finally enacts the Civil Rights Act. Like, how does this even happen? Right. It's just like the weirdness of history. Yeah, there yeah, happens yeah. to be someone who, you know, he himself had taught Mexican kids in Texas and mm-hmm. developed a weird, you know, feeling about yeah. those issues. Um, but himself was an like if you read Robert Carroll's biographies, which I really recommend you guys do, you, you learn how much how corrupt he was and mm-hmm. he, he actually had his own version of corruption going on. For sure. But um similarly, maybe someone will come forward and change it. Or maybe there'll be a popular like I don't know, uprising is a strong term, but like maybe demands that there be fixing going on because um I it just it is re- like politics in this city are very, very odd. There's a lot of vestiges of old stuff still around um, that I don't think are helpful, like machine politics, like um, these kind of structures that exist in this town that kind of perpetuate mm-hmm. um, certain political careers. Yeah. Um, and what that leads to is like a lack of reform around, let's say, city administration, mm-hmm. which I think is it's amazing that it is – when I talk to people on the street – and I know this because I actually – for full disclosure, I helped one, one of the candidates run for one of the offices mm-hmm. – and I learned this very, like, fascinatingly that almost everyone complained about city administration, mm-hmm. yet that was not on anyone's platform.
1: Of course, yeah. And it yeah, blew yeah, my yeah. mind,
0: because I'm like, this is like people complain about right. getting permits all the time. Right. That's If there's one thing that the city can do, forget about guaranteed basic income, forget about all these other, like, l- right. large grand projects. If there's one thing the city can fix is its own operation of, re- right. of, um, uh, of its own services. Mm-hmm. But I will say what's really fascinating... Um, I came across, uh, when I was doing this work, the equalization tables. Have Mm. you ever seen these? No. So, uh, by law, um, the state requires the counties to put out these things called equalization tables. This is like, if you want to understand New Jersey, or actually just politics in general, you'll understand through this document. It is the assessed valuation of all property in a town Mm. or city. And so any municipality in New Jersey has to to report this to the county, and the county reports it up to the state. And so they create these beautiful charts. And you can see that Newark has $12 billion in accessible Mm -hmm. property in the city. Now, why does that matter? Because that's how the vast majority of city services are funded. It's on the property tax of usually 1% per annum, uh, 1 point something percent per annum on those properties. Mm Uh, neighboring Milburn Mm -hmm. and we know like Milburn's not that big of a city has 9 billion and it shows you how the DAC is also stacked against Newark in terms of this stuff 12 12 and And 9 billion yeah it's I I gotta send you these tables Uh, like I love this kind of stuff where you can like really understand a city through this kind of really obscure thing that no one really and people think about because they complain about property taxes but they never think about I really cannot stand New Jersey residents complaining about taxes because they also like have the best public high school system in the country. Obviously, Newark, Patterson, Camden are exceptions to this. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, they get a lot of services in return. The roads are generally pretty good. But everyone's here whining in Trenton. They nearly unelected Governor Murphy over this. Like, this mm-hmm. is fascinating. Because they were complaining that they were being paying too much. And the irony of ironies is they have a really, like, we have one of the best states in terms of that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, it's really fascinating. Oh, just a fun fact. I looked up Jersey City. Do you know how much Jersey City has? $45 Yeah, so I keep, like, this gets me nervous. It's like, people are like, you know, New York is still the biggest city in the state, and that's important. Like, it's a good thing. Mm. But, like, Jersey City has, like, three times the budget we do.
1: Right,
0: right, right. For a city that's now roughly the same size as us. Like, a little smaller, but roughly the same size.
1: And it really, it makes me, you know, wonder, and, and I'm sure this is just yeah. part of my um, affinity for conspiracy theory. <laughs> but, you know, there is, I could imagine, the the impulse and the um, desire to chase the top um, in that way where in, mm-hmm. like, you know, if we're talking about gentrification and development, you know, urban development, it's like, the city, the city limits are not going to expand, but we can build up. Yeah. And if we build up, that number increases. Of course. You know what I mean. And so, there is a uh, a pull to facilitate the thing that will, in the future, give us a chance to to do more yeah. with you know bigger budgets and provide better city services or, or more consistent city services or or what have you. And. Um, it's like there are arguments to be made from every perspective and vantage yep. point, uh, but people have to actually live day to day, and in this. And so, um, some of the conversations are. It feels like some of the conversations are appropriate for academia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and but they're being uh, thrown out at residents as a way to stop the conversation there. Yeah, It's like if I can, if I can. If I can mention a thing to you that you're not uh, sophisticated enough to understand, like mm-hmm. I I can, you know, if I, if, if I can educate you, I can control your knowledge base. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm the person that's telling you what a thing is, then I decide how much I'm going to tell you
0: about that thing. Well, that's propaganda 101, isn't yeah. it? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a little bit of that goes on in the city um, sure. in general. I mean, like, there's different people doing it different ways. For sure. Um, but there's a lot of agitation around just the fact of getting people agitated to then fuel a political election or some kind of push for some particular thing. Yeah. Um, but it's empty oftentimes because it's just about that moment. And mm-hmm. it's not about a longer, enduring thing, I find. Yeah. Um, which may explain why we keep making the same mistakes over again in the city, or letting people make those mistakes for us sometimes. Right. right. Um. But your point is totally right. I mean, like, and that's the difficulty because there's often the we're seeing this nationwide. It's not just New but the sort of the divisions between the sort of academic and the theoretical mm-hmm. and the base interests of normal normal people, mm-hmm. like, and their their interests, right? They're like yeah. really day to day interests. And you often get a talking down to effect, which is why I think a lot of people are upset with elites because you often have elites saying... They're not necessarily wrong all the time. They sometimes do know what may be the best thing for everyone. But the problem with that is that doesn't align with what people see as their own interest. Education is often the best example of this. Mm -hmm. Like people wanting to have the best for their children yeah. but actually actively destroying our own country doing yeah. that because what you get is then like you know segregation within education you get privatization of education um i mean you can see this with charter schools it's actually deeply fascinating like you don't see charter like if charter schools were so great you see them in montclair mm-hmm. right there are no Montclair schools school in montclair there's a reason why right? right because they're able to control their own education system mm-hmm. there and they believe in public schools there because they can control them. Now, granted, they have a very famous private school in that town, but that's a small part of the population. It's not the dominant. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you come to Newark, it's like we're the testing ground for all these different ideas. So you have people coming in and and trying to push forward these agendas because they're part of larger political Mm -hmm. agendas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we become kind of victims to that. Um, But we often allow that to, in our own way, because we're either desperate or want these Mm. things to come in. Um, But that's hard i don't know how you square that circle because i think when new yorkers complain i mean the, here's an irony like um and i can tell you this from doing the election most people wanted more cops you just actively heard this like it's yeah, not yeah. necessarily a good um, like heuristic or statistically like valid method, but right. I will say, granted, it was the eastward, so East Ward's always special, mm-hmm. but like you were actively hearing people ask for more cops on the street, and like literally two summers ago, mm-hmm. we had some of the largest b l m protests yep. in Newark too yep. that we've ever seen, yep. and it it just shows you that like there's one level of what's going on, but there's also like a another level going yeah. on, kind of pushing yeah, in yeah, two yeah. directions for sure, yeah
1: um do you like what are your what would you say your ambitions are just for life in general?
0: I used to have them. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the thing about getting older. Maybe it's not true. I don't know. I used to have like, oh, you know, I would love to run for something. in This was 20, right? Because mm-hmm. you always have those ambitions when you're young. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for, through a combination of failures, and I've you know, had failures in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and a slow learning process, you start learning that the best way to live life is not to plan too far ahead. Right. like you have to plan for certain things like you know the fact that you're going to die mm-hmm. right you have to plan for that. that that's a real thing but to stop planning like I need to do A to get to B to get to C to get to D right. is when you start realizing that sometimes the path is its own direction it's it, the path defines mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. Um, and that the surest way of disappointment is to plan something mm-hmm. I think there's a, a Christian variation of this is like you make plans and God laughs yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. this kind of thing And so I've learned to be a little more open to a lot of different things. I still maintain a sense of what I want to do. I think one of my dreams would be to just, like, make writing in an expository way, sort of like essays and Mm -hmm. maybe even fiction writing and playwriting, um, a little more integral to how I actually live and make my life. Yeah. Um, I've been working a lot of, like, I have a novel that I've been working on for a while, play I've been working on for Mm -hmm. a while. None of this has seen the light of day for Mm -hmm. good reason. Mm -hmm. Um, But I eventually want to turn that into something that, like, actually both adds to the community, to a larger dialogue in this town, um, and also builds up stuff here, and builds up my own career. And I think what happened when I took that year off is I finally came to the realization that to be ambitious is to focus on the local build out these institutions. Mm -hmm. I know my God, I don't know if it's a sign, maybe I'm doing something wrong. (laughs) The thunder's like, no, Mm -hmm. Um, but to build out the podcast, to build out the, um, um, the magazine to build these institutions here. I would love to teach essay writing locally, Mm -hmm. um, maybe at an institution like Rutgers Mm -hmm. um, to, to undergrads and, and to bring, I think we've, like, as much as people keep doing STEM, 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 like, mm. we're, we're kind of getting lost in the STEM world yeah. and not doing enough in terms yeah. of thinking critically about our lives and what it means and examining things in yeah. a non-scientific way. Yeah, And so I'd love to do that. Um, yeah, otherwise, like, I mean, maybe the most ambitious concrete thing I would love to do is open a cocktail bar, but that, like, that's far mm. off in the future. Um, partly because it's just so expensive in this town with yeah. liquor licenses to do that. Yeah. It actually drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, but I know I sound like I'm, you know, sixty saying like you know the be- <laughs> Not to have any ambitions is the best ambition. Uh, but I'll tell you, a year of unemployment is a sobering experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if anything, it, it actually made me less hungry. Weirdly. Mm. Yeah. So so
1: let's talk about the cocktail. Yeah uh interest and and the cocktail bar. I think oh, I think um inevitably I'm gonna end up in the hospitality business in nice. some fashion. Um, uh and I'm glad I haven't entered into it as of yet. Um uh but I do think it's a it's a future and mm-hmm. eventuality. Um what what is it from from what I've seen um, of you, like, you are, uh, you seem to be someone who has, um, once your interest is fixed in a thing, mm-hmm. that's what you've decided you want to spend time and energy doing. And you might create a thing around it or you might just develop a new habit uh, of it. Um, what is it about cocktails? And like, is it is it like the chemistry of it all and the mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a bunch of things at once. So it's the it is the chemistry. The it's 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 a it's an art in the old school sense of the term. Like yeah. it's a discipline. Yeah. I think this is often lost in art. How much it's a discipline? It's yeah. actually why I got. I'm am I'm a, I'm a board member of the New York Arts Council, and I appreciate the art scene here. But yeah. it oftentimes feels like it's. Um, almost more about the message than it is about the actual discipline of the art, which gets me a little frustrated. Um, That's not everyone. I'm just saying this. I think it's generally art across the board. It's not a Newark-specific problem. Um, But if you want to be successful at cocktails and do really well with them, you're going to have to understand it's not flashiness. It's about just understanding structure um it's doing the homework it's realizing that free pouring is not a real thing (laughs) (laughs) uh measuring is your friend right um and what i love about it too though is there's an aesthetic coolness to it yeah um i had a lot of fun in new york city going to these great cocktail bars i saw them in new york city i see them in jersey city Mm -hmm and i just keep wondering we don't why can't we have that here yeah. and you're you'd be amazed at the headwinds i get at this all the time and i'm actively constructing a bar menu for two new things that are going to open
2: mm-hmm.
0: and the pushback not for these guys but for mm-hmm. the in general i get with i'm like i want to open a cocktail bar where there are no shots no wine no beer And the pushback, and no food for that matter, the Mm -hmm. pushback I get is just like, well, no, you have to have this. And I'm like, well, they do it in Jersey City. Mm -hmm. No one bats a fucking eye. Mm -hmm. And yet, like, Mm -hmm. we're here, and constantly getting questioned about that stuff drives me nuts. And I understand, like, what they're saying. I'm not naive. I understand that, like, there's a business Mm -hmm. plan there. Mm -hmm. They're not saying this just because they're against the idea, but they're deep realists. But the problem with realism is it often delves into cynicism. And cynicism the best expression of cynicism I've ever seen is um, it's knowing the price of everything, but the value of Mm -hmm, nothing. And it's a bit of that. It's just, it it becomes penny counting instead of idea building. Now the penny counting is important because it's how you survive. But when you have no idea, you have no coherence of concept. If you're just constantly following whatever, whatever prevailing wind is at the time, uh, you lose a sense of your idea and you fail. I can name a bunch of, Institutions in Newark mm-hmm. that opened up that did not mm-hmm. believe in their own concept yeah, yeah. and have duly failed yeah. because they refused to understand where they were, right. what they were trying to do, right. but also sticking to their own guns. Because I think people do lose a lot of respect to a restaurant that doesn't maintain a sense of itself and maintain yeah. a standard. For sure, because it just becomes any other place. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: yeah. It's like um, the, you know when I think about realism and the the injury Mm -hmm. that that realism slash cynicism um, can bring it's a lot of times in that you think you know the story and you know a story you don't know the story you know or you may know a number of stories but there are so many stories that you haven't heard and you've only reinforced the stories that you already kind of invested in so you've looked for more stories along those lines and you know those storytellers you look for whether the other stories they tell which are going to be the same story or the same types um i'm you know similar to the whole idea that narrative is more important than truth to me i think that uh, we are far more interested in the story and we are far we are incredibly um,
0: You know, it's so funny. On Potter Market, I have a tradition of calling out every time a siren goes by, and like I have a joke that you can't find a single episode without a siren. That is new. That's a new new one. Sorry for the listeners at home. That was that was lightning. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. Um, But yeah, there's like the the we really really underestimate how good we are at telling ourselves stories. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like none of us live in reality. We all live in the individual stories that we've told ourselves. About ourselves and about the world around us. And so, you know, when somebody presents an idea that is new, it's like that new idea is going up against a lot of stories Mm -hmm. that contradict it, you know. And the fact that the stories contradict it doesn't mean that the truth or the reality contradicts it, you know, but they're just conflated often.
0: Yeah, there's a, a a great Portuguese writer. He won the Nobel in 97 called José Saramago. And he wrote famously Blindness, which you may know because it was turned mm-hmm. into a film in around 2007, mm-hmm. six. But he wrote this book called The History of the Siege of Lisbon. And the conceit of the book, it's really fascinating, is that the uh, this monk who's writing the history um, of the siege of Lisbon mm-hmm. makes an accidental deletion, uh, what's called a daily tour in Latin, like a, a deletion. Got it and that actually changes the history yeah and if you think about it what is history this is like the meta-analysis yeah. of history as someone who profe- I profess myself to be a historian mm-hmm. I, I've always my, one of my, actually another ambition I have one of my dreams mm. is to write the post-67 history of Newark mm. from 67 to maybe 2020 2022 yeah. um, it call, I actually have the name for it it's Chasing the Renaissance which is uh, <laughs> um, if you live in Newark you know, re- the word know. renaissance is a loaded loaded yeah, meeting sure. <laughs>
1: Whatever the math is, and I'm yeah. sure you'll do it quicker than I will, but the 67th year after 67 is like what? Like 20? Uh, it 34? would be 30,
0: 2034. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That might be a That actually
0: be really cool in 67 years after 67. Yeah. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah. It gives me enough time to do yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But to get back to the thing, like um, as much as we profess to be historians, we like to think of histor- history as a, um, uh, in the way like that election? atomic physics is mm-hmm. like it's a it's a verifiable thing. And it, actually atomic physics what changed with uh, yeah. with Niels Bohr and 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 uh, and Max Planck and the quantum revolution? This is post Einstein. Sorry to get into history of science here, mm-hmm. but they discovered that like things were not stable. That Newtonian physics yeah. were not what we thought they were, or Einsteinian physics for that matter. Um, but things were actually super states of dueling co- contradictions, mm-hmm. uh, probabilities actually. Mm-hmm. So similarly with history, um, we think of history as it's like verifiable, like it is the re- like yeah. you know, like this happened on this date. But it really what history is, um is this is the stories told over time, Verify. We've developed mechanisms to help verify things, but at the end of the day, it is the story that we tell ourselves. So if we construct a history mm-hmm. that is, you know, America had its declaration on July fourth, seventeen seventy-six that in itself is a story, right? right? That's a narrative we've all chosen to believe Mm -hmm. because it seems to be verifiable. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we went around telling ourselves that the actual history is Game of Thrones and Daenerys became queen in
2: 1776,
0: and we all tell ourselves that that's truth, and maybe that won't stick because maybe there's some other aspect to history that's more grounded i don't know this yet but it is really weird to think that like i'm, I'm really looking at a history book i'm looking at isabella workerson's yeah, book yeah, yeah. F- from here right yeah. a book i've read and actually got to meet her when she visited newark oh dope yeah she's great uh i got to it was a great conversation i got yeah. to have with her um she you know if that were like just like like you know the alchemist which is right below right. that right just that and we call that the history yeah. what is history but what we choose to believe that is it's a dark place to go, but it's a very interesting one because it, it does question what are those narratives. It does get a little bit to what you were saying earlier, right? About narrative and truth mm-hmm. and like what is more true than the narrative that you believe. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah. We, we factor in history as a collection of and we don't factor the deletions. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's what history is as much as it is the collection of stories. Um, you know, we, we know it's like the 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 cool thing to do uh, uh in the last i'd say 3 years is uh particularly on you know social media mm-hmm. is uh, it's, it's become especially cool to point out the first black person to such and such yes of course right? yeah. or what things were invented by a black person or what it's like um this history has existed and has been documented for you know as long as this event You know, from the time of this event. However, the deletion is why it's so cool today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's been deleted for decades. You know, or when you hear um, the story, not the story, but the the account of uh, Rosa Parks, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, sitting on the bus. And then you find out years later that she wasn't the first. The assumption is that she was the first, Mm -hmm. even though it may not have been said that she was the first. Yeah. But if you say she did a thing that sparked the civil rights movement. The assumption is, well, she was the first to do it yeah. or else that person would have sparked it. You know what I mean? And then the reality is no, well, she wasn't the first. There were others. There wasn't just one other, there were others. Yeah. And so, you know, those things have been removed and that removal of data and accounts um, and events uh, is the history as we've learned it. Yeah.
2: You know,
0: you know what's funny is it is super popular um, to do this not so much Rosa Parks is much more recent but I think Mm -hmm. of like much more with ancient civilizations or ancient medieval whatever you want to call them yeah these other civilizations which I do love I mean I one of the things I loved doing when I was teaching was to teach about like this is what I hate like there's a lot of assumptions made about York kids like they only want to learn one type of history they actually fell deeply in love with like Japanese history and yeah. like you know ancient feudal Japan and I was like it's a really cool structure I mean it's the whole point of studying another culture is to learn something that is kind of different yeah. um, and one thing I got really frustrated have been frustrated with recently is this attempt to look at these other undertold civilizations which do need to be told more about that I agree with but then to look to them for like some kind of model, yeah. um, I think it's a little misguided because I've spent enough time in history and like every single civilization, it was horrific in its own yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think this gets lost. And I think we constantly want to moralize history, which drives me nuts because Absolutely. it's not, you don't get to a greater place of understanding. History is there to help you Learn from mistakes, understand things, kind of give you a sense of what the world is today. But when you look back at it and just want to feel good about yourself, Mm or like, or like try to prop up some kind of model, that's where you get into dangerous territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, a a good example is the Aztec civilization, which is a really cool, and this Mm -hmm. is not to deny they're cool and complex, but when you get people being like, you know, like, look at this beautiful civilization that was destroyed by the Spanish, which is true, they Mm -hmm. were. They were also, like, a society that was killing, like, their neighbors, like, for human sacrifices. This is, like, verifiable. This is something that they did. And, like, I am deeply fascinated by the Aztecs because they developed a very interesting structural civilization. Mm -hmm. The Inca are even more fascinating because the Inca are the um, largest—this is a really nerdy thing to say— they are the largest command economy we've ever seen in history. The Soviet Union could not even be uh, um, this—was not even this— Able to market be a command economy. Control, so or, a command economy is like so. What we're used to, we're used to what's what often people call free market or market based yeah. economy, where goods are produced uh, for um, for a market that are then sold. Mm-hmm. What the Inca did, uh, without any currency and without a writing system, two mm-hmm. things that almost a lot of other civilizations that were large yeah. at the time had, uh, they were able to actually command the entire empire to produce X amount of food or X amount of thing. And mm-hmm. that thing was produced mm-hmm. uh, and sustained themselves for a very long time that way, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of fascinating. We have evidence of this. Um, they did have kipu, so they did have a, me- a mechanism for communication, but they had no currency. They they were completely a command-based economy. That's deeply fascinating to what's, me. Is, what's kipu? Uh, kipu? Oh, so the kipu are these knotted, uh, really cool knotted strings, uh-huh. and they would use them to like do accounts. Okay. And to say, like, you must produce X amount of potatoes. Potatoes are the big grain. That was, like, their big gotcha. energy, uh, how they... Consumed yeah. energy, and um, so you have these fascinating Ameri- like civilizations in the Americas. Yeah. But then to look at them and look at them as like they're like some kind of noble civilization is to essentialize them, yeah. and I always get frustrated with because yeah. every civilization is you know has its hierarchies, has its shitty things that it's done to people, right. And I get nervous when we don't bring that aspect of history of being of like completely honest about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But that's true. Like, but I think that goes both ways. Like, we you talk about that with European colonial set- settlerism too. Yeah. Right.
1: I mean, it goes into everything. Like all, mm-hmm. all the stories that we uh, take in as the reference of humanity mm-hmm. stories. You know, take the Bible for example. Mm-hmm. Like the Bible is a collection of stories of events in people's lives and people individual life stories or just events that included you know certain people yeah. but you know at any point in the Bible with the exception of um, Jesus yeah, yeah, yeah. while he was alive or um, Abraham before any I'm oh, sorry not Abraham um, Moses well yeah like you, you've got Adam Oh yeah. Abraham, Abraham Moses jesus right you could argue that at some point you know these people these men were the most faithful men to god Mm -hmm. of their lifetimes right you can't argue that about anybody else in the bible you know what i mean like there are there are you can't argue that david was the most faithful
0: you know. David couldn't build this temple because his hands were unclean because right. of, for killing Uriah the Hittite. Like, <laughs> Sorry, it's like, it's like that, that part is all documented. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, clear yeah. that he is not
1: yeah. the reference of faithfulness to God yeah. for that time period. Like he wasn't the 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 best at
0: it. Although I'll tell you, he's a much more interesting character. For sure, because well, like like Adam is a very boring character because like. I mean, I guess you could create a cool story around well, that, yeah, but the like, so brief without yeah, that. it's actually really, like, it takes up, what, four pages of, of Genesis, not even, probably less than yeah. that. Um, whereas David, like, has a long history, how he comes to power, at least mm-hmm. by the terms of the Bible, and mm-hmm. his relationship with Saul, his relationship with right. Jonathan, which right. is right. interesting queer story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then further his relationship with Bathsheba mm-hmm. and... and that is a that's a mini series I've always wanted to do that as a mini series. Yeah, but yeah. you're right, he's he's the one that has the most problem,
2: right? With right. you
0: know God, he has actually a son who rebels. Like a whole it's a thing. whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So so the stories that we told, like you said, like we you know these stories become our reference. These stories become essentialized, yeah. and when we make the stories and the people essential, then we make it a little harder to. Uh, not only to question uh, the validity. What was that? I don't know what that was. <laughs> that Sorry, was <laughs> that's the
2: third random noise for this. Yeah, <laughs> this podcast. Um,
1: uh, but like you know, David David's story and, and and the stories like David throughout the Bible have been all essentialized, mm-hmm. and because of that, we look at them as um, the reference. Yeah, you know what I mean, and. In that we still omit a lot of things when we're looking at them, when we're observing them, when we're reading them, when we're studying them, we still give David the the place, you know what I mean, the history, yeah. and you know, um, yeah, we can go on for <laughs> ever hours. Yeah, um, I, I I'm very very thankful that you came through today.
0: Um, I'm glad I'm here I love talking to you
1: yeah same here I I love the expansive conversation and uh, yeah it's just enjoyable I like you're just an interesting dude man you're an interesting person you have interesting experiences and interesting um, perspectives you know what I mean and I think that you're you're somebody who um, uh, is easily mistaken and uh, you don't. <laughs> it's like this thing, it's like, it's this thing that women uh, tend to say: like you don't look like what you've been through. Yeah, and so it's like it's really dope uh, just to sit down and have yeah. the conversation You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I want to thank you because, like, you. Um, it's so funny because you like I, I often when I describe you to people, I, the first thing I'll say is "best dressed in Newark and I and I stand by the, <laughs> I stand by this. Uh, I, I wore this shirt specifically so I could at least have some <laughs> yeah. color and some. Uh, some interesting look i uh, i just don't have the energy i don't know energy. how you do it I, I i look at what you wear and i'm like god damn it <laughs> he's trying he's putting work into this <laughs> um but i love talking to you because i think it just reminds me of all these great conversations i have in newark mm-hmm. and i think one of the biggest misconceptions about this town is that we don't do this yeah and yet sure. we do and, yet- and we have deep conversations they're not always like about particular subjects, I think people think we talk about yeah. this. Down, we can talk about metaphilosophy yeah, yeah, here for sure, and we do <laughs> sure
1: quite fluidly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, man. Of
0: course, thank you. Yep.